You know, a few of you have been asking questions about um, is Golden Hills going to do anything in response to the fires that are all over the, the state. And I wanted to let you know that uh, there's a church that we uh, are in ministry with uh, in Chico. That's part of our district, Converge Pack West. And they are partnering with some of the um, organizations and whatnot that are helping with the relief effort up in Chico. And uh, we've already sent money on ahead uh, this past week to them, about $4,000. And we're hoping on December 2nd to have an offering. And uh, that all the proceeds and the little envelope that you'll get in your bulletin will go to uh, fire relief in California. And so I wanted to make sure that you were aware of that, that we are responding and we're doing the best we can uh, to try to meet the needs. And the most pressing need is just money in order to buy the resources that are needed. So we all know that uh, a lot of tragedy has hit and um, the wildfires are pretty uh, evidently, I don't know, they're just hard to see the numbers of people who've lost lives and homes and things like that. So what I want to do is take a moment just to, let's pray. Let's pray for these families who've been affected. Let's pray for um, just everything involved and ask the Lord to help. Father, when we turn on the news, sometimes it's just so discouraging. And even living here, hundreds of miles away from where the fires are, we still are affected because of the smoke that's here. So, Lord, it's, it's more than just wearing masks. I pray that you would use this smoke that we see and encounter to remind us to lift up in prayer those who are being so tragically affected. God, we want to pray for those families who have lost loved ones. God, that you would comfort them and that you would grant them the grace that they're going to need to face the days ahead. In addition, Lord, I pray for those families who still don't know where their loved ones are. And I can't imagine the turmoil that is going on inside of them without any answers to so many questions. So God, would you also grant them peace, comfort, grace. Lord, thank you for so many churches that have stepped in and have already begun to help in any way they can. I pray, Lord, that you would grant them the energy that they're going to need to, to labor well in the hope of the gospel. And Father, we also want to pray for those countless firefighters who are expending themselves. And so, God, we ask that you would grant them physical energy, mental fortitude, that they would fight on, fight well, and that you would watch over them and protect them. Lord, there is not much that we can do sitting here except for what we're doing right now. So God, would you help us in the days ahead to continue to pray and to continue, continue to do whatever we can. And Lord, would you help us as a church to be sacrificially generous in a couple weeks to, to get the money that you see that we need to give and God, would it go and meet the needs that are there. So God, do whatever it is that you're gonna do we know ultimately you're going you're gonna to accomplish what you will. And so, God, we have to surrender and yield to that, trusting that you are good. And so, God, work your will, we pray. We trust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. It really is hard um, to watch. A couple days ago it was 
40 some folks had lost their lives and a you know a few thousand structures and a couple hundred people missing and it just seems like that number just keeps escalating and what I find fascinating is you don't ever have to ask firefighters to respond to something like this you don't have to beg them nor do you have to beg for many of us to respond not only with prayer but also with the opportunity to give whether it's to the Red Cross or some other organization you see when we see like a tragedy like what's happening we don't need to coerce one another we don't need to beg one another to respond we naturally respond because we are confronted with a great tragedy we, we see something which is beyond ourselves but we also understand that we can do something and what's really interesting is you can tell the magnitude of a thing by how we respond to it and so the greater the tragedy the greater the response the greater we value something the greater our response to it will be and so you can tell a lot by how we respond to things it's a telling demonstration of what that thing's value is in our lives and what we're going to see today in second samuel chapter 6 through 10 is we're going to see david response to a number of things firstly we're going to see david's response to when the ark of the covenant is being brought into jerusalem and how he responds to an event that happens with a man named uzzah nextly we're going to see how god interacts with David and gives him this great promise and how David responds to that promise and then in chapters 9 and 10 what we're going to see is David is looking to extend his kindness to two individuals and those two individuals respond in complete opposite ways to David's kindness and so there's three different responses that we're going to see and one of the things that we need to ask ourselves is how do we respond when we face things that are huge they are awesome they are tragic whatever word you want to put in there how do we respond to these things which are so big and they affect us so much and one of the things that we're going to see here is just how David responds to the presence of the Lord, how David responds to tragedy, how David responds to the grace and mercy of God. And so hopefully when we leave today, we'll have asked that question and, and step forward to answer it. How do we respond in the presence of God? How do we respond when tragedy hits? How do we respond when we are confronted with the grace and mercy of God? How do you respond? So we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, I'm not going to be able to read everything, but I'm going to do my best to read a lot of it. And so we're going to be in chapter 6 starting in verse 1 through 4. And what we see first is the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember from 1 Samuel... We talked about the Ark of the Covenant as a symbol which represents God's presence. Remember the Ark of the Covenant had inside of it the Ten Commandments. And uh, there's two cherubim, the angels, that had their wings spread that were kind of over the top of it, which is called the mercy seat. And God's presence dwelt at the mercy seat. And so 
Um, that is the place in which God chose to condescend himself and to be amongst his people. And so when you see the Ark of the Covenant, you have to think to yourself the presence of God. It's not that God is contained there because even the heavens itself cannot contain God. But instead, God decided that that would be the location in which he would meet with his people. And so the Ark of the Covenant, David wants to bring to Jerusalem. And so what we see is it's God's presence coming into Jerusalem. And God's presence, as we're going to see, is one of serious joy. And I love putting those words together because God is not someone to be trifled with. We don't play games with God. It's a serious endeavor to be confronted with the presence of the Lord. But at the same time, to be in the presence of the Lord is such a joyful thing. And I love holding those two things in tension. Serious joy. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 6, 2 Samuel. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So David takes a group of men, 30,000 of them, and he goes to get the Ark of the Covenant. And so they build a new cart. You can imagine a flat kind of cart with some wheels. They put the Ark of the Covenant on it and they begin to drive it heading towards Jerusalem. And then we pick it up in verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his heir. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? The presence of the Lord is coming. People are dancing and singing, celebrating musical instruments. That's one form of worship is just vigorous, exuberance and singing and shouting with joy. And then all of a sudden, the silence stops. Over the procession, everyone is awestruck at what has just happened. The ox stumbles, the cart looks like it's tipping. And the Ark of the Covenant is also tipping, and Uzzah, who's walking beside the Ark, reaches out his hand to stabilize it, ensuring that it doesn't fall off of the new cart. And when he does it, God strikes him down. And in response, David is scared. It says he's afraid. And he asks himself, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? How in the world can anyone be in the presence of God and not be fearful in the slightest. A lot of times when we read this, we're kind of thinking, man, God is like a capricious kind of, I don't know, like what's his deal? Why is he striking people down just because they're touching this wooden box? Like, I mean, the guy's heart was good. 
Like his intentions were good. So why would God do something like that? And usually we ask this question because we think that Uzzah was basically innocent. And so therefore God seems kind of unjust to strike down this innocent man who was just simply trying to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant. And so we read the parallel story in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And you read there about David's plan to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And then you continue on to chapter 15. And there in chapter 15, you see that David recognizes the mistake which caused Uzzah's death. And we see it in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles 15 verse 1. David built houses for himself in the city of David. And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. Because or for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. David assembled all Israel, Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Verse 12. And he says to them, you are the heads of your father's house of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord your God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. And so the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Brother and sister, do you see what just happened? You see, David wanted to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. And so Uzzah and Ahio, they, they built this cart, a new cart, and they put the Ark of the Covenant on it, and they begin to push the cart, and they're driving it towards Jerusalem. It hits a rock or something like that, begins to teeter, and Uzzah reaches out and grabs it, making sure the Ark of the Covenant does not fall off. And we think, man, what a great guy to preserve this very precious box. But instead, God strikes him down, and we realize the, the reason why God does that is because, according to his word, especially in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, the Levites were supposed to carry on poles the Ark of the covenant and so God had already prescribed for them the exact details of how they're to transport the ark of the covenant and they decided to just totally ignore what God says and do their own thing and by doing your own thing as good as it may seem it's convenient it's expedient it's helpful God still strikes Uzzah down because it's not in accordance with his word which tells us, brothers and sisters, if we do not live in accordance with God's word and what God has commanded, we should be fearful that what awaits us is judgment. God is not to be trifled with. God is holy. And as our maker and creator and sustainer, he has every right to demand of us whatever he wants. Now, we have every right to reject him and disobey him, but it will be to our own peril. So Uzzah wasn't all that innocent. David recognizes it, so he commands the people, let's do it right this time. Let's do it right this time. And so we pick it up in verse 12. It was told to King David, uh, by the way, they, they took the ark and they bring it to a man named Obed-Edom. And it was told to David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and, and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. 
So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the, co- or bore the ark of the covenant had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and, and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. We'll get to that in a minute. But what you see is it's not all doom and gloom. Once David recognizes his mistake, how does he respond? How does he respond to his sin? It wasn't David who touched the ark, but David is the king. The buck stops with King David. And so he recognizes his sin and he wants to respond to his sin. How? With excuses? With justifications? No. David responds with obedience and he responds with recognizing Unless there is atonement or sacrifice or the shedding of blood, my sins will not be forgiven. And so David takes the ark and the Levites are carrying it. And after they take six steps, David sacrifices an animal because we're told in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's, not the, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so what David does is he works, him, he, he works and gathers everyone and, and they begin to go towards Jerusalem and they're making sacrifices and asking God for forgiveness, covering their sin. Would you atone for our sins? We have made a grave mistake and recognizing their sin and they're now walking in obedience. Do you see how those two things go together? We don't excuse our sin. We don't justify it. We don't try to ignore it. Instead, what we do with our sin is we acknowledge it, face it directly, confess it to God, and we seek ultimately to be forgiven of it. And the only way to be forgiven of sins is that there is a sacrifice of atonement to take away sins. And I think this is a great example for us of how you and I can face our sins. There is a sacrifice that is offered. There is forgiveness that is offered. But that sacrifice is not on our part. It's been made for us. God has sent his one and only son, Jesus, to be the sacrifice, as John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so if we confess our sins to God with our mouths, We believe in our hearts that Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, which has been guaranteed by his resurrection. Then our sins will be forgiven. But only then. And so I think the people, when they're celebrating, remember they're dancing, and even David is leading the way dancing with all of his might, leaping and singing before the Lord. They're, just not, they're not just celebrating the presence of the Lord in the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem. I think also they're celebrating the fact that through the sacrifices that David is making, they know that with God their sins are forgiven. There is great rejoicing when you come to the realization that my sins are many and they are great, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus, 
because God sent him to die in our place when we confess our sins and receive the washing and purification of our sins through his blood. When we embrace and accept that, there is a response which I think is, is appropriate and that is rejoicing. There's got to be rejoicing, I think. And here's one of the things I'm starting to realize. If we do not apprehend or comprehend our misery, then when we are confronted with the remedy, we're kind of disinterested. Eh. All right. Whatever. But we see in this example how David responds to a sin, and it is so different. <laughs> it is so different. And so I think this is one form of worship, brothers and sisters. And I think maybe it's an indictment against all of us who sometimes come to worship singing the praises of God for all that he has done. And we're standing with our hands in our pockets and our mouths closed. I tell you what, when your favorite basketball team, football team, baseball team scores the winning touchdown, the last second shot, or hits the three-run walk-off homer, you rarely put your hands in your pocket with mouth closed. What do you value most? None of us can fully obey. None of us obey God's word perfectly. Therefore, all of us should live in fear of a holy God. And yet at the same time, we're told that this holy God who demands perfect obedience recognizes our inability to obey him perfectly and has sent his one and only son to do that which we could not. And he lived perfectly. Not only that, but he took upon himself the consequences of our sin so that we need no longer fear the consequences of our sin, but we can have our sins forgiven and we can be ushered into the presence of God, no longer in fear and dread, but instead rejoicing. And that is only because God has done that. That is good. So let me ask again the question, how do you respond to the presence of the Lord? A proper response is to acknowledge our sin before a holy God. And then to acknowledge that he has forgiven us our sins through his sending his son Jesus and his shed blood on the cross and through his resurrection. And we shall, should respond with great joy. And then it goes on and it talks about Michael. Remember that? She despised David in her heart. Verse 20, David returned to bless his house. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and this is sarcasm. Make sure you see the sarcasm here. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, to, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Michael despises David, probably because she sees in him that he's not acting much like a king. You see, there's kingly behavior. There's, there's an accepted way in which you should carry yourself if you're the king. 
You can't be leaping and dancing and singing and leaping and dancing and singing so vigorously that your outer garments fall off and you're left just kind of in your, you know, your britches. And so Michael's looking at this thinking, my goodness, what an imbecile. What an absolute idiot. Look at him. He's not acting very kingly. And yet David's response is, I don't give a rip what you think of me. I don't care what your opinions of me are. Do you understand what is happening this day? Do you comprehend the fact that God, his presence is among us? God is our deliverer. God is our forgiver. God is, he's everything to me. And so David dances and jumps and, and he's just filled with joy and his clothes fall off and she's worried about pretense and she's worried about his reputation. For us, I think that's a great question that we should probably ask ourselves and it's probably something like this. How often are we preoccupied with the nagging thoughts? I wonder what people think about me. I wonder what people think about my vacation. I wonder what people think about my family. I wonder what people think about this new purchase I have. I wonder what people think about me going to church. I wonder what people think about me in the way I live. The reality is we have an audience of one. And how we should respond to when people berate us because of how we live in obedience to God in response to his grace and mercy, we ought to be able to say in full confidence, like David, I don't give a rip. I love God. And I'm going to respond to God in a visceral way because emotions aren't bad. Which is, I don't understand, I just said that, and maybe some of you just, <gasps> joy is an emotion. Gladness is an emotion. Brothers and sisters, we ought never to fear worshiping God with emotion. Don't fear that. In fact, we're commanded to serve the Lord with gladness. God commands us to be emotionally responsive to his grace and to his presence. And then God demonstrates his matchless grace to David. And from that, we see how God extends that same grace to us in the person of Christ in chapter 7. God's desire, or excuse me, David's desire is to build God a house, a temple. He says this, chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. And what is about to happen is amazing. God is going to respond to David in a way that will blow David's mind. And then eventually we'll see how David responds to this. He says, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, 
Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I love what God does here. God says, you're going to build me a house? I never asked for one. Why do you think I need one? Or as Isaiah 61 says, where the prophet Isaiah says, uh, records God's words, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Or in Acts 17 where the apostle Paul says that God does not live in temples made by human hands. And so you have this theological truth that God is, is so transcendent and beyond the created world that it's almost ludicrous for David to even think the idea, I'm going to build a house for God. He's going to be in a box. I'm going to put him in there. God's thinking, what are you talking about? I never asked for that. And even if you built one for me, I couldn't even dwell in there. I feel heaven and earth. But what we're seeing here is a principle that runs throughout Scripture from the beginning all the way to the end. It's a principle and a theme throughout Scripture that many theologians call the Emmanuel principle. Do you remember what Emmanuel means? What does it mean? God is with us. And whenever you see this little phrase in Scripture, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's called the Emmanuel principle. It's the idea that God desires to dwell with his people and his people will have him as their God. We actually see this in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, where God says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. You see the phrase? But it also started in Adam and Eve when God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. You remember that? And then we go on and we actually see where God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle. And during the day he was a cloud and by night he was a pillar of fire. And when they set up the tent, he descended upon the, the tabernacle we also see eventually when they will build the temple where God's Shekinah glory comes down. And once again, we see that he will be their God and they will be his people. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 22, we see the, the prophet Jeremiah write this. The words of God, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Several more times in the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that same refrain over and over and over again. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then we get to the New Testament and we see in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Not only that, but then the next chapter, John chapter 2 verse 21, where Jesus says, you destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And people are going, it took over 40 years to build this. What are you talking about? Jesus and the apostle John tells us Jesus was talking about his body, which is the temple. And then you go on later in the New Testament and you see the Apostle Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, that in him, in Christ, you collectively are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see that? We as the church gathered together for worship and praise of God are a temple where God dwells. But not just corporately and collectively as a church, but also individually. You remember this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, where our own individual bodies are a temple to the Lord. And then eventually we get to Revelation chapter 21, where we read this. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every, away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And Revelation 21, 22 eventually tells us, in the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, there is no temple. Why? Because God and the Lamb are the temple. So when you look at this, you see from Genesis to Revelation, God desires to be with his people. And what is so beautiful is that he wants to be with us so desperately, badly, whatever word you want to use, that he recognizes that there's an obstacle between he and us, and it's our sin, of which the sin needs to be dealt with. It's an obstacle. So God sent his one and only son to conquer sin, to remove the obstacle so that he could once again be experienced by lowly sinners like you and I, not in fear and dread, but in joy because of his grace and mercy and because of the shed blood of Jesus that we would be forgiven and admitted into the joy of our master. You guys get that? Throughout scripture, that's been God's desire. But if you remember Adam and Eve, they got booted out of the garden because of their sin. They couldn't be in the presence of God. And from that day forward, if we ever try to get into God's presence with sin in our lives, it will be dread and fear that we should expect. And then all of a sudden, God flips the script on David. I love this in verse 8. Remember, I'm going to build a house for you. God says, what, what in the world are you talking about? I always dwelt among you in tents. I never asked for a permanent house. Instead, here's what's about to happen, David, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Woo. God says, you, you want to make me a house? Mm -mm. I'm going to make you a house. But if you notice in verse 1, it says that David already lived in a house. So what kind of house is God going to build for him? It's not a literal house made of two-by-fours. It's a house in the terms of dynasty. God said, I'm going to make a dynasty out of you. And he co continues on. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall, he shall build a house for my name. Now we're going back to the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before, uh, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in accordance with all these things, all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You want to build me a house, David? No, no, no. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build a dynasty of you. There's going to be an offspring. Who will build me a literal house? But you will have an offspring who will reign on, on your throne forever and ever. An eternal kingdom. How will David respond to this? How is he going to respond to this grace? Here's another form of worship. We saw David worshiping earlier. Remember singing, dancing, jumping, lyres, tambourines, all kinds of stuff. Verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. David's response at this time is humility. Lord, you took me from the pasture. In other words, I was just a lower class runt. I'm nothing. And you're going to lay these promises upon me? I don't deserve any of it. That's grace. You literally don't deserve it, but yet God lavishes these blessings and promises upon you. And David's response to that stunning grace is humility, where he just goes before the Lord and sits down. And I imagine him putting his head in his hands going, I'm overwhelmed by your grace. I can't even find words to say. That's another way to respond to grace. And then David recognizes that the promise God has made is for all mankind. Did did you see that? He says in verse 19, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. This is instruction for mankind. We can't overlook that because what David is doing and and what Samuel as as the author of this is, is is doing, is helping us to understand that the covenant that God is making with David should cause us to remember the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses and also the covenant that God made with Abraham. And it also projects us forward. It's because we're New Testament people in the sense that we have the New Testament, we read it. It points us forward to Jesus as well. And so if we go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we see where God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families. Look at that. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 17. God says, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
And so we hear and we see the promise of God, the blessing of many nations. We also see the Emmanuel principle. We see the promise of an offspring. And so just through Genesis 12 and 17, we don't have enough time to get into the Mosaic covenant. But when you just see that, what you see is there's a connection right from the beginning. There's a promise of an offspring in Genesis 3.15. Then it's the promise of an offspring to Uh, to Abraham and a blessing of a multitude of nations and kings. Then you have Moses and there's going to be a promise of someone who will be like a prophet of Moses. And then we get all the way to David and on and on we go. And by the way, there's a lot to say about that. And fortunately in January, we're doing a church-wide campaign on the covenants and we'll cover all of that stuff in detail. As for now, we'll move on. But this promise of an offspring who will reign eternally On David's throne, the question for us is, who is God referring to? Who is in mind here? And in one part, it's obviously Solomon, who is the descendant of David, who would build the temple. But there's also a greater offspring, a greater descendant, who will reign on a throne forever. Now, instead of me telling you who that is and just giving it away, what I want to do is I want to quote at length one of the greatest sermons ever preached. And you obviously probably know the answer already to who is this in reference to. We're approaching Christmas. And if you remember Luke chapter 1, remember what the promise was to Mary? Your son, he will be great. We've called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Judah forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's a clue. Luke chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, when God appears to the shepherds in the fields. In verse 10, the angel says to them, fear not. Remember, fear. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for who? All the people. All the people. Joy for all the people. So let me quote at length this great sermon. You're probably thinking I got it off the internet. I did not. It comes from Acts chapter 13. It's the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, 
Because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, his children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this, through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one tells you. And as the people went out, they begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Just stop there. One of the greatest sermons ever. The conclusion of the sermon is that all of this is God's grace. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to David. That any who will come to Jesus, that you can have the forgiveness of your sins because Jesus was crucified for you and Jesus is risen for you. So that you need not fear the presence of the Lord anymore. You can enter into his presence with confidence and assurance because the shed blood of Jesus will cover you and purify you and wash you of your sin. But you can also come into the presence of God with confidence and assurance because we know for a fact that Jesus' crucifixion and the blood that was shed there on the cross is sufficient because Jesus has risen from the dead. And because he's risen from the dead, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so you and I have an opportunity in hearing about God's grace. We can respond accordingly. And how will you respond? In Acts chapter 2, when the apostle Peter preaches, the people hear this and they ask the question, what should we do to be saved? And Jesus And Peter says, you need to repent and be baptized. And you will be saved. And we see in chapter 9 and chapter 10, we have to go through this fairly quickly, how people respond to David's kindness. Remember, David is a kind of Jesus. He's a type of Jesus. He anticipates Jesus. So David wants to show his kindness to the house of Saul. And so he asks a question, is there anyone from the house of Saul that I can show my kindness to? And a guy named Ziba comes up to David and says, yeah, actually, there's a descendant of Jonathan, and his name is Mephibosheth. And uh, so David calls him, Mephibosheth, welcome. And we see this in verse 6. 
He came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. David says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Do you see the response of the kindness and the grace of King David, which is anticipating for us the grace and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus himself? How should we respond? The answer is by falling on our face, worshiping God in humility and saying, I am nothing, but you are everything. Thank you for this great blessing. I can do nothing to earn it or to pay you back. I surely just take it by faith. That's how you respond. In humility, but also great joy. But then also David wants to show his kindness to a man named Hanan, who's an Ammonite. His father has just died. And so David sends some people to kind of communicate his condolences. Of Hanan and the others who are gathered there, they see that David is actually trying to do something other than, you know, he's being dishonest, they think. And so he doesn't really care about Hanan's father's death. And so they mistreat the messengers of David. So David says, okay, I see how it is. The Ammonites hire the Syrians and they go to war against the Israelites and the Israelites defeat them. That's another way to respond to the grace of God, by resistance and rejection. But that will be to our own peril for there is grave consequences to reject the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God. So how will you respond? So, Father, we are going to leave that question for you to help us answer. We're going to ask, Lord, that you would go before us and that you would help us to kind of discern truth from error. Help us to walk faithfully with you. God, as you've granted us grace and mercy and kindness in the person of Jesus, I pray that you would help us to respond accordingly. And we'll give you the thanks for what you show us in Jesus' name.